Yeah, she just keeps licking my elbow. She's done it ever since I sat down right here. It's so weird because it's like <laughs> what I can see in the bottom part of my screen as I'm talking to you. It's just Willow lapping up your elbow like you <laughs> dipped it in tuna. Um, I actually did start giving her wet kitty food and so now she like begs for it. Let me tell you, I recently bought two big jars for cat one for cat treats one for dog treats and because previously they were in just like multiple different bags and containers in my pantry which is actually just a cupboard so it's like i'll get them in here it'll be great thank god i was going for aesthetics and chose the metal uh jars with the stone marble lid because the second skippy and sebastian saw that that's where their treats come from they have tried to open it every time I take my eyes off of them. <laughs> I will literally be in the living room, like, watching TV or whatever, and just hear them trying to lift <laughs> open that stone lid. One of these days, they're going to work together, and they're going to get the lid off. Like, it's just going to happen, and the stone's going to fall on the ground. It may break. They're going to dump out the treats and eat all of them. It's, this will happen while you're at work. <laughs> I know. I'm going to come back to just two of the fattest cats <laughs> because it's like, it's like a 60 ounce jar and it's like most of the way filled with treats. So, Well, oh, hello Lord. everyone. <laughs> um, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And this is Cat Life. <laughs> cat Life. It's real, though. <laughs> it's so real. They're just, you know, your pets always have their own personalities and characters. And they almost, I mean, they're definitely a part of the family. I don't know about you guys, but I definitely talk to mine. And it's fine. And, like, I will be on the phone with a human and talk through the dog. But you know what? Hey, I think everyone does it. We just don't talk about it yeah. enough. <laughs> it's. I mean, I agree. I just wish that the personality of my cats was that of like a band kid who reads a lot and like is quiet and stays in their room. I wish my kids were like the good kind of sullen teenagers, not like the party kind of teenagers that I got for some reason. <laughs> but you know, it, it happens. Willow has her moments of um, reading her novels and wanting us all to, like, be quiet. And then she also has her other moments of running for the window and slamming into it. It's her new thing. All <laughs> the time. <laughs> she just, she really, she's trying to tell you she wants to be on that pole vaulting team. But she doesn't really know what pole vaulting is. Um, that or she is just really wanting to go outside and I will not let it happen. Fair. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. First and foremost, I want to mention Patreon to y'all. If you haven't, you should head over to patreon.com slash blood and wine podcast and check out our awesome blood and wine family members that we have there. Um, we have some awesome benefits as well for our different patrons, one of which is being the director of an episode, which is what today's episode is. So our topic for today was a Patreon pick from Heather, and I am so excited. It's an it's a topic we've mentioned a couple times before, and really had long conversations on how to do it right. Yeah, it's a difficult um, one for sure. It's a difficult one, and y'all will see why. But it's one that I'm like, okay, I want to discuss this. I want to kind of bring this side 
of murder and crime into the podcast. Definitely. And our topic for today is vigilante murders. That's people going out and vigilante writing wrongs they see. Yeah. But it's still murder. And so I'm excited to hear what you did. My case is super interesting and one that I'd heard about maybe a couple of years ago. Yeah. That I've had in the back of my mind and I'm so glad to have been able to use it for this episode. Well, and when I think of vigilante murders, you know, I honestly always think about Dexter. You know, Dexter, mm. show on Showtime. He was a serial killer, but he was killing killers. Like, he worked for the Miami Police Department as their blood spatter analyst. And by night, he was killing these people. And so sometimes he would be investigating his own scenes. But not really, because he used, like, the plastic sheets. But anyway, like, he considered himself doing right. He was getting rid of the scum of Miami in his own way. But if you watch the series, which I do highly recommend it if you've never watched it, I love that show. Uh, Not necessarily the last season, but everything up to then, very good. But yeah, he's a vigilante murderer. But thank you so much, Heather. We are looking forward to this pick and for the cases and hope you like what we picked as well. So, listeners, if y'all want to direct an episode like Heather, check out our Patreon. Check out our Cabernet Sauvignon Convicts level, where directing an episode is one of our tier benefits. And also check out all of our different other benefits, like handwritten thank yous, shoutouts on the podcast that I'm sure you've heard, and our Murder Mini episodes and Bottle Talk episodes. Yes, which are always so very fun to do, and we know you guys are really enjoying those. And while you're at it, be sure that you have subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, just whatever your podcast platform of choice is, we're on there. Just subscribe, that way you get our episodes when they're live every Tuesday. So one thing that I want to say before we jump into wine, have you heard recently about the old man who was released from prison because they were like, oh... He's too old to kill again. And then he killed again. And what? he's this old ass man. No, so this guy. No, I haven't heard any of this. This is like literally why you put people in prison for life. Like mm-hmm. if they're a threat, which I mean, I guess he seemed like he wasn't. But okay, so what happened? So this guy, Robert Flick, he was in prison for murdering his wife 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And... He had a long history of, like, violence against women, murder. So, in some cases, when I can totally agree with being like, yeah, you know, releasing people early because, you know, whatever. Sure. Not in this one. No. So, he was in prison for 25 years, but was released because he was deemed unlikely to hurt anyone again because of his advancing age. In July of 2019... He was convicted by a jury in Maine for stabbing a mother of two boys to death in front of them. What? Yeah, he murdered 48-year-old Kimberly Dobby in front of her sons. And the murder was scarily similar to the murder of his wife 40 years before. So jury took less than an hour to convict him. Yeah. And his stepdaughter, so the daughter of his wife that he murdered. Yeah. uh, Who was also there when he murdered his wife 40 years ago, uh, was quoted as saying, there is no age that is too old to commit murder. 
and he never should have been on the streets. And yeah, I feel like too old to murder is a terrible reason because it is. there are some old people that are scary as fuck. Have y'all not seen like mafia shit that goes on that it's like this 300 year old man who's like, <gasps> kill the whole family. And you're like, oh my God, grandpa, you're sitting there sipping coffee and just ordered the death of like 15 people. Well, yeah, you know, I very much agree with his stepdaughter because that's what I was thinking of like, okay, if the reason you're letting him out is because he's old, like, no, he needs to, to show that he's reformed and that he, you know, felt guilt and that he's trying and that it's no, not like, yeah. oh, he's old. It's it, he's fine. Clearly he wasn't. Yeah, getting out of prison is not one of your senior citizen benefits that you get. It's not discount meal at Denny's. No, it's absolutely not. Okay, well, I'm going to now just go into my wine because you started the murder episode with murder and it's time to talk about wine. (laughs) True. So I actually did a Pinot Noir and I don't think we've done one in quite a while. I think the last one we did, you did a French Pinot Noir um, earlier this year. and I do not recall. (laughs) I do because I loved the bottle. It was like the Le Violet, the one that looked like oh. it said like Les Violets. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now I remember. So the lesbian violet one. <laughs> Got it. Le. Anyway, I picked the 2017 Petiole Pinot Noir from Trader Joe's, and this one is you know really pretty. It actually kind of looks like a Mark West mm. style label. It's got that same it like does. yellow orange going on, and it's actually from the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Ooh. And a Willamette Valley Pinot under $10 is very unusual. This one was 9 bucks yeah. at Trader Joe's. And, like, even Trader Joe's prices, that's still a really good price for the, uh, wine from this region. So it was made using a large Oregon producer in the Willamette Valley. And it was aged in oak barrels for 14 months, which is going to give it some vanilla and spice notes. The color is very much a see-through garnet. Um, Like when I pulled this out from chilling and the light hit it, you can see straight through the bottle and it's this beautiful garnet color. And the nose is going to be a very legitimate Pinot. It's herbal with cherry, mushroom, vanilla, and a hint of smoke. And then a little whiff of spice. And again, that vanilla and the spice is from the oaked barrel. This Pinot Noir starts with a silky mouthfeel, and then it takes on a little bit of a rougher edge when you get to the mid-palate area, and it tastes like ripe black cherry, cola, licorice, and black pepper. And then that mid-palate sharp exotic spice kicks in with some orange peel, vanilla, and plum. Then at the end, you've got some acidity to close it out. And the tannins are sweet and they're out of the way, so they're not too harsh. And it's a full finish, flows for quite some time, so it it lingers and you get bits of leather there at the very end. So I know I just described like literally like 20 different wine words. And so I'm really excited to open this bad boy up and see if I can taste them like it tells me I will. Um, I also don't really know. I am sure I've had a Willamette Valley Pinot, but I do not recall. Hopefully that's not where Mark West is from because I was literally just talking about it. I honestly don't know right now at this time. But anyway, 
Okay, while I open mine, what are you drinking tonight? My wine is the 2018 Kono Sauvignon Blanc from Marlboro, New Zealand. Oh my uh, god, with, and it's a New Zealand Sav. And it's a Marlboro. Like, it's my favorite wine types, which I've gone over a bunch. So, as a refresher, New Zealand... Ooh, nice pop. Um, New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs are... In my opinion, the best, and in many wine reviewers' opinion, the best Sauvignon Blancs in the world. Definitely. And and they have a very characteristically, um, like, grassy, key lime kind of citrus flavor going on. One thing I wanted to call out for this wine in particular is that the Kono Vineyard is actually a Maori-owned vineyard. And the Maori people are the first peoples from New Zealand. Oh. So really awesome to have a winery that is just so ingrained in the culture and history of the region. Nice. And one thing I did want to highlight for this wine is how differing reviews can give you very different ideas of what the wine is. So I actually found two reviews for this same wine that say some very different things. The first one was from Wine Enthusiast, and they say, This is a very pale-hued wine that could, on quick glance, be mistaken for a glass of water. The flavors are relatively watery as well, delicate, if not overly interesting notes of ripe lime, pineapple, and green bell pepper. The acidity is a little tart, and a touch of residual sugar left in the wine offers some fruit weight to counteract it. The finish is short and simple. So, from that review, I'm like, hmm, okay, so it's gonna be, you know, just a very light Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, like almost a glass of water where you squeeze some lime into it. Maybe have a pineapple on the edge. Yeah, that's the vibe I'm getting. The second review is from Wine Anthology, and it reads, A brilliant pale green in the glass. This pure and bright Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc has a vibrant fruit-driven nose bursting with passion fruit, grapefruit, melon, and gooseberry. On the palate, luscious fruit flavors of citrus, ripe tropical fruits, and lifted herbaceous notes are finely balanced with zesty acidity and underlying minerality and just a hint of residual sweetness. Juicy, crisp, and fresh, this wine leads to a long and dry, persistent finish. So that's the exact opposite. Right? I was like, I had to double check multiple times. I'm like, did I type the same thing in? I did. So either Hmm. the wine is going to be just bursting with flavor or watery. It's either going to have a short and simple finish or a long, lingering, persistent, dry... I have no idea what I'm about to taste. I'm excited for you to try it, but I do want to say I have to comment on how beautiful that bottle is and how Mm -hmm. the wine in that bottle almost looks like this sea foam green, like mint color. It's very, I'm getting very beachy vibes from it. Yeah. No, I'm loving the aesthetic. Also, super cool wine label. Also, it's a twist off and it was only like $12, I think. Not bad. Also from Trader Joe's, actually. So. Oh, you did get that one at Trader Joe's. 
Oh my gosh, it smells so good. All right, pour it in a glass. I want to see what it looks like. I poured mine. Look how light this is. Wow. That, that is that, almost clear. That is probably one of the lightest wines I've ever seen. And the bottle is almost clear. Like, it's a clear glass bottle with definitely just the tiniest hint of blue in it. Yeah. But it's the tiniest hint of blue, and the wine is the tiniest hint of yellow, so it makes a mint-looking wine in the bottle. Yes, it does. All right. Well, I'm really excited to get into both of our wines, so let's cheers and smell and give it a go. All right. All right. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. On first assessment, I have to go with the second review when talking about the nose, because the first thing I smell is passion fruit out the ass. I'm absolutely getting a nose of herbs and maybe a bit of that mushroom. Definitely some smoke and spice. Like, I always forget that Pinot does not smell as fruity as I think it will because of how light-bodied it is, that it does Mm -hmm. have depth and it has those herbs. And honestly, the smell of cherries mixed with smoke is a really interesting scent to me. Like, I really like it. I am loving this. I don't know what a gooseberry smells like, but again, so heavy on the passion fruit. A little bit of the melon, not as much grapefruit as I'd think. Well, I just took my first sip, um, absolutely getting that cherry and licorice, black pepper. I don't think it has a super long finish. I would call this one a medium finish, and I'm not yet getting those hints of leather, but the tannins are really low. It's more so this like cherry and smoke and pepper. This is a good Pinot. I'm not as versed in Pinots as I think you are or or a lot of people because I don't drink light reds um, that often. It's a really good one. I recommend it. I think there are better Pinots out there, but I will say for $9 and getting to try one from the Willamette Valley region, this is a really good quality Pinot. So, yeah. This wine is really interesting. It's not like a lot of the... Marlboro Sauvignon Blancs that I've had before. It doesn't have the grassy notes, and it does have some of that key lime flavor, but not as strong as others that I've come to expect from the region. It's really good. Definitely has a like a heavy pineapple tropical fruit. Yeah, I would say it's neither bursting with flavor or a very delicate light. I would say it's somewhere in between. So you're basically taking the middle road of both of those reviews. Yeah. There are aspects of the flavor that are very concentrated, but overall the flavor does lean more towards the delicate side, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I love it. I mean, I love all Sauvignon Blancs, and this is a great one. I'm glad you like it, because I honestly wasn't sure when you were saying it's very middle of the two reviews... But it looks very refreshing, and I'm still, like, super into the way it looked in the bottle. Like, I just can't get over how beautiful that color was that it made. It was really pretty. This one, I will say, I will give it a danger label, because it's 12.5%, which I think is pretty typical of a Sauvignon Blanc. But this is a very easily drinking wine, especially if you had this, like, out by the pool. I mean, you could down this bottle in, like, 
30 minutes. So just be careful. (laughs) Just remember it's wine, not water. So before we jump into our cases, we have a quick promo that we made for our partnership with First Leaf, and we're going to play that now. Hi, everyone. This is Blood and Wine, and I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we've partnered up with First Leaf, a monthly wine subscription service. With First Leaf, you take a quiz to determine your wine preferences, and based on your results, First Leaf sends you an intro box of six wines. Try all the wines and rate them, and First Leaf will use your ratings to recommend more wines for your curated club orders. If you happen to get one you don't like, you just let First Leaf know, and they will replace it. Your shipments of six bottles are all $15 a bottle, no matter what wine you get. You can also order additional boxes other than your curated ones in their online store. With our partnership, if you visit page.firstleaf.club slash bloodandwine and enter blood and wine at checkout, you get free shipping for a year. That's a savings of $120 if you're just getting one box a month, and even more if you order additional boxes. Again, that is page.firstleaf.club slash bloodandwine and the code bloodandwine at checkout. Bye! Bye. Alright, well, we've got our wine, talked about our topic. Thank you again, Heather. I'm going to jump into my vigilante murder case. I picked the murder of David Gout. And the sources I used were the BBC, Independent, and Huffington Post. Oh, so a British crime. Yes. In the summer of 2018. Oh, and a recent one at that. Very recent. So David Gout had just moved to New Tredgar Carefully in South Wales after spending time in prison. He hadn't been in the city for long, only there about six weeks. He told people that he had been in prison for murdering a soldier... But his neighbors discovered the truth about his criminal past after they searched his name on the internet. A guy named David Osborne, who was 51, learned that Gout actually served 33 years in prison for killing a toddler. And Osborne was absolutely livid and started to plot out an attack. Osborne's neighbor, Cal Alford, actually also learned that Gout was convicted as a child killer. He and his partner, Samantha Jenkins, found out this information on a Black Calendar website, which lists British murders. And that's when they saw Gout's name, saw he was responsible for the death of a 15-month-old. Oh my god. So That's so young. Oh my god, yeah. I mean, that's not even a child. Like, that's a baby. So Kyle and Samantha go over to Osborne's house and... They're telling other residents here in this long row flats area, oh, like what information they found out. They, they feel that people need to know who this guy really is and, you know, that he's yeah. saying he killed a soldier, but that's not the case. Kyle and Samantha went to see Osborne, who they knew as Ozzy, and they told him what they had found out. And there was another neighbor there, Ion Harley, who was 23. And he immediately joined in on this plan. He said that he wanted to chop up gout and put him down the plug hole. So basically just like chop him up down the drain. Shit. Okay. So Osborne and Harley got a third man, Darren Isham, who was 47, to join their group. But the ringleader of this planned attack was Harley. On August 2nd, 2018, just hours after they had learned of Gout's crime, 
the three of them lured Gout, who was, like, getting ready to go to bed. He was wearing a dressing gown into Osborne's flat, offering him some DVDs. So they're like, hey, dude, you want to come over? We've got some DVDs and whatnot. Like, just come stop by. And Gout's like, okay, sure. He was then held down on the floor of his neighbor's flat and repeatedly knifed, leaving him with gaping wounds all across his body. At one point, a knife was plunged so hard into his sternum that the tip of the knife broke off and remained embedded in his bone. He was stabbed with knives and a screwdriver, and his fingernails were removed, and there were several cuts made to his neck after he died. After the men killed him, they dragged Gout's body back to his flat and tried to clean up the crime scene. They dragged him down a covered walkway, cleaned the flat, got rid of their bloodied clothing, and set fire to his car to destroy incriminating items. The fact that this is just, like, later in the day after they learned this, I'm like, shit, y'all were ready to kill. Y'all just needed a reason. I mean, it was literally just a few hours after they learned. Like, they knew Gout was a murderer. He said he murdered a soldier. But when they found out it was a a young child, they were like, nope, he deserves to die. We don't want him in our neighborhood. And so they plotted to kill him immediately. This is a, there's not even a discussion of like, do we want to do this? It's a, okay, so we're going to kill him. All right. So knives. Yeah. mm -hmm. Let's burn his car. Mm, That'll get rid of the incriminating evidence. Ah. Perfect. Thanks, Sally. They just like, they just put together this This is like plan. a ten minute discussion. If even that. So Gout was found by police after another neighbor allegedly heard the three men talking about moving the body. So a postmortem was carried out by a pathologist, Dr. Derek James. He found over a hundred and fifty stab wounds on Gout's body. Holy shit. From both a knife and a screwdriver. The screwdriver was found in the folds of his dressing gown, and the injuries on his neck appeared to have been consistent with the screwdriver, so they stabbed him in the neck after the knife, like, with the screwdriver. And many of the other stab wounds were consistent with knives. Dr. James found that a larger blade was used to cause some of the wounds in his belly, and he determined that Gout, like I said, had been stabbed 150 times until he was dead, and even then, he continued to receive another 26 stabbing blows after he was dead. These numbers, however, are definitely just an estimate. He was stabbed so brutally that the exact number of times could not be determined. Yeah. I mean, is this three wounds in the same spot? Or five, or two. I mean, yeah. Exactly. And his fingernails, those were actually removed after his death. So that wasn't... Oh, God. I mean, I guess that's good he was dead, because that I mean, it's... is, like, one of the most painful things I can imagine, is having your fingernails ripped off. It is. It's one of the forms of torture. I mean, similar to some of the horrific things we talked about um, a few episodes ago. So the day of the murder, on August 2nd, Harley visited two other neighbors and spoke about Gout. And he told them, don't worry, you won't be seeing him again. So, you know. That's not suspicious at all. Well, and the neighbors just thought, like, maybe they beat him up. Maybe they gave him a talking to. Like, the neighbors didn't realize they killed him. That they were just well, like, I no, we're like done. I feel like they pretty soon realized after his body was found being like, oh, shit, that's what he meant. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I mean, even though they did try to clean up the crime scene and get rid of incriminating evidence by burning the car, they're not really doing a good job of hiding the fact of what they've done. Yeah. I mean, it does not sound like 
they really care to keep it hidden. No. So when it comes to, you know, what what was it that they found out about Gout that really made them do this? Like, yes, they found out he had been in prison for murdering a child, but like, what happened? Gout had actually, his roots were in a different part of Carefully County. He was from Morrington Meadows Estate. This is where a woman named Jane Pickthall ended up after she moved to South Wales from Scotland with her Chinese waiter boyfriend and two children. The couple split up and she became a tenant with her two sons, Georgie and Chi Ming Shek, who they called Marky. In December 1984, her new boyfriend, then the unemployed David Gout, joined them. On an evening in February 1985, Gout looked after the children while Jane was out visiting a friend, and she, she got home around 1.30, and Gout reassured her that the children were fine, and so she went ahead and went to bed. At about 10 a.m., she woke up, and she went to go check on Marky, and she found his cot broken, and her son was under this toppled dresser. Oh my god. So she picks him up, she she's holding him, and cuddling him, and she's wrapping him in a jacket, and she's just holding him for like an hour. But at this point in time, he was already cold and stiff, but she did not, she just don't want to believe her son was gone. Marky had died from a whole catalog of injuries that included a broken arm, a lacerated liver, torn spleen, and a fractured skull. There was also bruising found on his legs and his abdomen and a burn on his foot. He literally tortured this baby. Yeah, yeah. And so he was arrested and um, sent to trial. And during the trial, prosecutors described... Marky suffering a series of assaults that could have included punching, kicking, and being thrown against a hard surface. And again, he was 15 months old. So he oh. he can't defend himself in any way, shape, or form. Gout didn't give any evidence and gave various excuses to the police, including blaming his girlfriend, saying that it was her fault. So at this time in 1985, Gout was 21 and he was sentenced to 32 years after being found guilty of torturing and killing Marky. In November 2017, he was released on parole after serving his, you know, 32 years. And he ended up settling 11 miles from the scene of the crime. So, and like I mentioned, it was only in the days leading up to his murder that the word started to spread in the neighborhood that God's victim was not a soldier, but it was a baby. Yeah, I find it interesting that it wasn't known. I feel like that's, I mean, it's not a huge county in Wales. Wales isn't a huge country. I feel like this would be a thing that is very well known, especially only 11 miles away. But I guess it was 30 some odd years prior. Yeah, so there may not be a lot of people living in the area that he moved in that knew about what happened and you know i honestly people don't necessarily google all their new neighbors that move in and he was admitting that he was a criminal he was like yeah i killed a soldier but when you say killed a soldier it's like okay but like 
why? What'd you do? Was it, were you a soldier? Was this a fight? Were you in a bar fight? Yeah. Like, what happened? Or did you just, like, pick on someone that was a soldier and murder them? Like, there are just so many questions. But when it's a child, there are also so many questions, but a lot less forgiveness. Yeah, I just feel like there had to be some older people in the town, you know, an elderly couple that hear the name David Gout, and they're like, oh my god, the guy who killed that baby back in the 80s. Yeah, you would absolutely think that it wouldn't have taken six weeks for people to find out. While six weeks is not a long amount of time, it is when you think about something like this coming out. If if you're not even, he didn't even move to another county, he stayed in the same county. Which is probably parole reasons he couldn't, but still. Yeah. So when it came to the three men's arrest, the police were actually alerted by another friend, a guy named Michael Lewis. After visiting a pub, Lewis and the three men allegedly returned to Osborne's flat. Believing that Lewis was asleep, Osborne, Harley, and Evesham they started discussing the murder of Gout. And they, Lewis said that he heard the three men talking about the fact that Harley had killed Day because he'd murdered a child. And after Harley stabbed him, they cleaned up. So Lewis is sitting here, not asleep, but damn well pretending like he is now. Uh, yeah. (laughs) He specifically remembered one of the three men saying in the presence of the others, we're going to have to cut him up and take him to get rid of him. Like, You know what I mean. And the other men said they didn't have tools for that. So not only did he hear them talking about the murder, but he heard them planning it too. There was also talk of cutting off the fingernails and flushing them down the toilet and throwing a thumb in the river. So the things he heard were consistent with things that happened. Like not necessarily the flush it down the toilet and throw them in the river. Although they never said the fingernails were recovered. So maybe this did happen, but they were at least removed. So the trial started in January, 2019 and Gout's wounds were said to have been so gruesome that pictures were actually withheld from the jury. Wow. That I think is really intense because at least here in America, they pretty much show the jury anything and everything and they hold nothing back. From just the sounds of it, I can imagine that he resembled ground beef more than a person from how many stab wounds he had. Yeah. And honestly, maybe the fact that they were like, these photos are so gruesome, we're not going to subject you to seeing them, impacted the jurors even more than seeing the photos. That is true, because like we've mentioned before, the brain is a powerful thing and you can imagine some fucked up shit. It's true. So there were actually two knives that were claimed to have been used by Harvey and Osborne during the attack, one of which was later cleaned and left on a draining board in Osborne's flat. This was the knife that was used to stab Gout while he was still alive, and then a screwdriver again, like I said, after his death. However, the second knife that was supposedly used has never been found. Harvey's actions in the crime were described as savage and brutal, And the court heard that he had a number of violent convictions to his name. Prosecutor Ben Douglas Jones QC said that Harley had history of attacking men he believed were child abusers after previously strangling and gouging the eyes out of disabled men that he had wrongfully believed to be a nonce. 
which is a slang term for a pedophile. That is so brutal. Gouging their eyes out? Jesus. Yeah, from men that were disabled that he just wrongfully believed to be pedophiles. Like, he wasn't even right. I mean, I... Not that that makes it okay, but I'm saying, like, he wasn't even right. Yeah, it's one reason why I'm very glad we have a justice system, because as much as emotions can run high, especially after really heinous crimes, and you'll often see uh, Facebook comments on any news media post about a killer or a rapist or anything and you i mean you'll see people that are like tie him up cut their skin and let the dogs eat him while he's alive and you're like okay wow that is a lot yeah so it's like harvey was trying to be this vigilante murderer he was doing he was doing right he was cleaning up the streets he was getting rid of david gout who he deemed as a threat in the neighborhood He didn't care that David had already done his time. He didn't want David in his neighborhood. And that's the same of these men that he had attacked that he thought were child abusers. And then the men that he assaulted and gouged their eyes out because he thought they were pedophiles. Like, he thinks he's cleaning up the streets. And this is like, nah, dude, you're not Batman. You are literally a murderer. You are literally assaulting people and even more even more than assaulting them you're you're harming them irreparably the judge mr justice lewis said that gout had experienced real suffering at harvey's hands before he was brutally murdered and mutilated after his death so not only did harvey kill him but then also further mutilated the body with more stabbings taking off the fingernails just things that yeah there i mean why During the trial, it was said that the murder in this case was brutal. The deceased, Mr. Gout, himself committed a violent offense, but it is no part of our function to judge him for that. He was judged by a jury all those years ago. He was sentenced, and he served that sentence. And the court also heard that the day before the murder, Osborne's mobile phone was used to conduct online searches for registered sex offenders. So they're, like, looking him up, looking other people up. Just, again, more with this vigilante trying to get rid of the wicked. When he himself is very much a member of the wicked. Exactly. And another thing the jury was told was, in the same way that you would carry out your task if you were dealing with the murder of a gangster who had killed many people, you have to stand back from any reduced sympathy you might naturally have for the deceased given his historical crime and assess the quality of the evidence. So basically reminding the jury that yes, they knew full and well that David Gout had murdered this child, but that a jury had already convicted him of that he'd already served his time and they can't judge Mm -hmm. his being murdered on the fact that he was a murderer like they're they're mutually exclusive like they're not they do not go hand in hand they do not influence one another at all well and the thing is he'd gotten 30 years which you know depending on your viewpoint maybe that's not enough but it's not like he got out with a fine or with five years jail time or anything like that i mean he he got a severe sentence yeah and i didn't look up anything about if he was a model prisoner or whatever but the fact is they determined that he could go out on parole and live his life outside of the prison so in march 2019 harvey was found guilty of murder 
and perverting the course of justice. Evesham was found guilty of perverting the course of justice and helping cover up the evidence, while Osborne was cleared of murder after he admitted perverting the course of justice. So towards the beginning of the trial, he was like, yep, okay, I did. I perverted the course of justice. Like, I tried to get in the way of this being solved, but I didn't murder him. Evesham was jailed for three and a half years, while Osborne was given two years and four months. But the shocking level of violence inflicted upon David Gout, both before and after he died, is very much reflected in the prison sentence that was handed down to Harvey, who received a minimum of 24 years in jail. And again, this is not, you know, the American system we're talking about. We've talked about this before, how other countries don't necessarily have as long of prison terms as we do. And so in South Wales, this is a really lengthy sentence. So for David Gout, he thought he'd paid his price for the crime that he committed three decades ago and could start a new life. But Harvey clearly had other ideas. Wow. So that is the murder of David Gout. I think one thing that is very interesting for vigilante murders and murders like this are that naturally you have instant sympathy for the victim. You know, the victim is the hero of the story and the person who you feel for. Yeah. In vigilante ones, it turns on its head because there's a reason why someone made the decision that this person deserves to be murdered. You know, you're torn. You're like, I hate him. He's a monster. He murdered a child. He himself was a murder victim, though. It's So it's yeah. very interesting pull because you feel sympathy, but you also hate him. For me, at least, I absolutely do not agree with vigilante murder. No. Because don't murder people, no. ever. Like, murder's not good. But it's something that you're like, yeah, I mean, I get it. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. But I see where they come from. Well, and I think it's an example of our justice system. And this is me speaking of America, but also all over the world. This is an example of the justice system having to work the way it's supposed to. Because like I was saying, the jurors had to be told like, hey, we know this guy is an absolute monster, but he's a victim. Like in this case, we're not Mm -hmm. looking at who he was or what he did. It's about what Harvey did to him, what these three men got together to plan after Gout had already served his term. And in the eyes of the law, he'd done his time. He had done what he needed to do. So it's just because I agree with you, like, I, I get it. But also that doesn't make it right. And in this story, literally everyone was just a monster and it it actually gives you a pretty sad outlook on society sometimes because it's like the people who think they're doing good are actually just as evil as the person that they were murdering because it's not like they showed him any mercy by just doing a quick kill shot or something they were like no we're going to torture you and i'm and i didn't find this in anything but it's almost like they wanted to torture him like he had done to baby Mikey. But that doesn't make it okay. That doesn't justify this crime. It's still a crime. Vigilante Mm -hmm. or not. So my case is the murder of Ken McElroy. The name sounds familiar. I first heard of this one with you. So I'm going to go through it and I'm going to see if it triggers in your mind 
of remembering it. Okay. Because we were both in the car listening to a podcast, and this was one of the cases, and I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Every, like, three seconds. <laughs> okay. I might have been driving, and you might have been sleeping, actually, so you might actually not remember. <laughs> that is, there is a very good chance that's exactly what happened. Remember when you used to always yell at me for falling asleep, and I couldn't stop? <laughs> I know, because you yell at me if I fall asleep, and then literally the second I get in the driver's sleep, you, like, enter a coma <laughs> and see this is why you can't fall asleep because you don't want me to fall asleep while i'm driving but also when i am in the passenger seat and you have like the music going or a podcast going i can't sleep i can close my <laughs> eyes and relax but i can't actually sleep I could be listening to my music all the way up i could be blaring death metal windows <laughs> down like <laughs> And you would be passed out next to me, just like <laughs> sleeping like a baby. Yeah, you know, I like I like you know because all the death metal I listen to. You do like your your death metal, you know. You you, you get some little Whitney, a little Celine Dion, throw in some Slipknot, and that's your mix. I don't know if Slipknot is metal, but I also don't know enough about Slipknot to say one way or the other. But no, it would just be actually me singing along with 80s and 90s divas and you sleeping through it. So, Which I don't know how. When I hit those high notes, it could shatter glass. <laughs> they say that Mariah hits the whistle tones. They haven't heard me. No, they have not. Okay, tell me about anyways, Mr. McElroy. So the sources that I used are an article by Oren Gray that he wrote for the lineup titled The Unsolved Vigilante Murder of Ken McElroy, which, you know, I can give you two guesses on how I found that article. <laughs> Historic Mysteries and then Mental Floss. So those are my three sources. So in 1981, the town of Skidmore, Missouri, which is in the northwest corner of Missouri, about 100 miles from Kansas City, had a population of about 440 people. Oh my god, that's basically no one. That's very small. It's, it's a very small town. And just about everyone in this small town knew Ken McElroy. He was known as the town bully. He was a big man with bushy sideburns and cold eyes who carried a gun and had plenty of money, even though he rarely worked. McElroy was born in 1934 and was the 15th of 16 children to Tony and Mabel, who were a couple of humble sharecroppers that probably could not have coped with having so many kids. I mean... And okay, it's 16, though, so I don't really know anyone who could cope with that. But they did their best. They were good parents. But when McElroy was young, an event took place that would go on to probably help shape the person he would eventually be. He was riding on a hay wagon at his parents' farm when he fell off and hit his head. And this injury was so severe that a steel plate had to be surgically implanted into his head. That's pretty bad. Although, weren't they just, like, putting plates in everyone's head when they hit him, when, you know, back in the day? I mean, he was born in 34, so this probably happened, like, during and or post-World War II, so, yeah. Yeah. So, eventually, McElroy dropped out of school at the age of 15 in the 8th grade, 
And shortly thereafter, he became known as just a delinquent kid in Skidmore. So rather than get a stable job, McElroy began hunting raccoons, which in turn led into petty crimes. I'm sorry, like, how does hunting raccoons turn into petty crime? Was he, like, inspired by the raccoons and their natural masks that he was like, these guys know what to do. I'm going to go do that, too. Yes, 100%. From then on, neighbors would find him eating out of the garbage, <laughs> um, you know, giving birth in alleyways, you know, things like that. He did. No, I mean, I don't know. it. I'm honestly not sure how those are related, but in all of the articles I read, it was phrased like that. They always weirdly specifically mentioned he started hunting raccoons. And it led to a life of crime. Was, so it might be just that that got him used to killing or, or like always walking around with a gun ready to shoot something he didn't like. I'm not sure. Yeah. Or killing raccoons was illegal. And I don't know. He was, I mean, he was maybe, doing it. Okay. Or maybe he was giving birth in alleyways to little baby raccoons. I'm really, I really think he's digging through the trash and eaten late night dinners. Like, that slice of pizza you didn't want? That's okay. He does want it. Who throws away a full good slice of pizza? Uh, I don't know. Not me. I always finish the whole pizza because I'm not <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I finish it in one sitting, so we'll there. Um, anyways. One pizza is one he... serving, okay? Like, don't tell me otherwise. It is. <laughs> but anyways, McElroy established himself as a cattle rustler and a small-time thief, but... His penchant for crime would quickly grow to be more severe. Over the next two decades, McElroy was suspected of stealing grain, gasoline, alcohol, antiques, and livestock. And although charges related to these crimes and statutory rape allegations were brought against him some 21 times, McElroy always got off scot-free. Wow! That's insane! So McElroy was notorious for being a womanizer and a shitty guy in, in just all around. Yeah. And he ended up with more than ten children of his own to many different women. And a lot of the women were still children themselves. Oh, in, yeah. I hate in that. In 1971, he met a girl named Trina McLeod. At the time, she was 12 years old when he was 37, and within just two years, she was expecting her first child. No, 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 no. So Trina McLeod, who would be McElroy's last wife, was only 14 when she became pregnant with his child, and she dropped out of school in the ninth grade. The issue of domestic violence came to light during a visit to the local doctor, and since she was still a minor, Ken McElroy was also facing charges of molestation. But he was told about a possible loophole. If the two of them got married, then Trina would be unable to give evidence against him. What she would be able to tell authorities would mean that he could not avoid jail time. So he had to find a way to make sure she couldn't tell the authorities things. And so he divorced his third wife... And he married Trina. And then Trina went on to live with him and his now ex-wife. What? So his home that he and his third wife are living in 
Well, he divorces her, and now he marries Trina, because at this time, Trina, as his wife, can't testify against him. So, if the victim in a statutory rape trial can't testify, it's probably not really going to be charges that can be brought against. That's so sick. now she lives with him and his ex-wife, and she is now his wife. It's a whole fucking, like, stew pot of fucked up. Yeah, it really is. By the time McLeod gave birth to McElroy's child, any illusions that she may have had about him had been swept away. So any ideas she had about him being a good guy, this being a good thing, that was gone. She and Woods, who was his third wife, so now his ex-wife that he lived with, fled McElroy's home and returned to McLeod's childhood home to her mother and father. Because again, she's 14. Yeah. It's not like this is, I say childhood home only because now she's living with her gross rapey husband. But it's like literally still her home. How old is he at this time again? He's now 39, 40, something like that. Oh. And she's 14. Oh my god. But even though she ran away, ran back home, McElroy was unflustered. He simply went to the house and forced the two of them to return to him. He then went to the McLeod home while her parents were away, shot the family dog, and burned the house down. I hate this guy so much. Yeah, he is a fucking monster. In June of 1973, McElroy was indicted for arson, assault, and statutory rape. He was arrested, booked, arraigned, and eventually released on a $2,500 bail. McElroy was one of those people that was never without a firearm of some kind, either on his person or mounted on his vehicles. And while mounted, I'm sorry, weapon, mounted on his vehicles? Yeah, in, like, hunting communities, though, not so much. Like, just think of a truck that has, like, hunting rifles and stuff, like a mount for those. It's not that crazy, and especially in Missouri at this time, in the area of Missouri they're in, it's not that unusual. I'm just, like, imagining a cannon driving down the street, because... I don't know, mounted weapons? Okay, yeah, okay. Just think of uh, basically like a gun rack you might see on someone's wall that has them like hanging flat against the wall. Oh. That on like someone's back windshield of their truck. I thought you were talking about like mounted to shoot. No. Okay. It's not. It, the, he's not driving around in like <laughs> military vehicles. Although, honestly, I wouldn't put it past him. No, I wouldn't either. I bet that's was, like, what he wanted. That was his desire, to have his own, like, fucking Hummer with guns all over it. But no, so he always had a gun on him or on his truck, which isn't weird. But brandishing it was pretty weird. And he had no reservations about stuffing a shotgun into someone's face or belly if he felt he needed to make a point. So he's the kind of person who you get in an argument with, and he literally, like, points his fucking gun at you. In July of 1976, McElroy shot Skidmore farmer Romaine Henry twice with a shotgun after Henry confronted McElroy for shooting weapons on his property. McElroy was charged with assault with intent to kill, but despite Henry's own word in the case, McElroy vehemently denied being a part of the scene. 
Oh. And as the case dragged on without a court date, Henry claimed that McElroy parked outside his home at least a hundred times. Whoa! During the trial, Henry's own petty criminal conviction was discovered from 30 years before, and between that and an alibi that McElroy had been able to wrestle up, McElroy was once again acquitted. So he is just, like, never serving any time. Yeah. I mean, getting out of trouble was his specialty. In addition to allies, who were often his hunting dog buddies, who would guarantee he was always someplace other than the scene of a crime. You know, he always had an alibi where he was, because he could tell his friends, Hey, wasn't I with you that night? Watching TV? Oh, yeah, you're with all of us. Yeah. He also had the money to hire Richard McFadden. There's a lot of nicknames in this case, I'm realizing. There are. McFadden was a very skilled defense attorney who would represent McElroy. McFadden would use every legal maneuver at his disposal to get hearings postponed or delayed on the premise that the longer it took to go to trial, the colder the case against McElroy would get. Suddenly, defendants who had been assaulted or witnesses who had seen McElroy's impropriety would spot a pickup truck parked outside of their house or hear a shotgun going off in the middle of the night. Sometimes, McElroy would confront them face-to-face and explain in a measured tone that he'd kill anybody who opposed him in court. Oh my god, that's brutal. And, you know, perhaps most of these people could hold out for a month or two, but faced with extended periods of McElroy's harassment, many of them would recant their own statements. Time and time again, McElroy would simply walk away from serious charges with nothing more than a dent in his wallet. In 1981, McElroy's mean streak went beyond just bullying and violence to attempted murder. The attack concerned a local grocer, 70-year-old Ernest Bo Bowenkamp, and a piece of candy that Bowenkamp's wife had accused McElroy's daughter of shoplifting. So basically, McElroy's at the grocery store with his daughter. His daughter grabs a piece of candy, and this grocer's wife is like, hey, your daughter took some candy, and it escalates from there. Unwilling to let this matter drop, McElroy harassed the Bowen camps, leering at them from his pickup while parked outside their house, and occasionally firing his shotgun into the air. And finally, McElroy approached Bowen camp while he stood on the loading dock at the grocery store and shot him. Oh. Because he shot this guy because his daughter had stolen candy and this guy's wife had seen it. So he shot the guy. Thankfully, Bo Bowenkamp survived the attack, but the town had had enough. David Baird, who was the newly appointed prosecuting attorney for Nottaway County, managed to get the first ever conviction against McElroy in the shooting of Bowenkamp, but a judge released him on bond while he was awaiting appeal. Like, nothing can get this guy. Nothing. McElroy's first move after being freed was to go down to the D&G tavern carrying a bayonet that was attached to an M1 Garand rifle. And while sitting at the bar, McElroy began telling everyone around him exactly what he planned to do to Bowen Camp. But McElroy never got the chance. 
Many of the patrons at the bar were alarmed, and they wanted to see what they could legally do to prevent McElroy from harming anyone else. Nottaway County Sheriff Dan Estes came up with a possible solution. You know, the town could form a neighborhood watch. Mm-hmm. We could, you know, always have someone tailing him, and, you know, then he can't do his little crimes. It's a bad fucking idea. Yeah, I mean, so literally just, like, follow him around? Yeah. So on July 10th of 1981, the townspeople met at Legion Hall in the center of town to discuss with Sheriff Estes how they could actually protect themselves. Later that same day, while the meeting is still going on, McElroy and his wife Trina, so Trina's still with Oh my god, Trina. They drove into town in his pickup and returned to the D&G Tavern. Soon, word trickled over to Legion Hall that McElroy was just a few doors down at the tavern, and although the sheriff attempted to dissuade citizens from directly confronting McElroy, a large group went over to the bar. So McElroy was leisurely finishing his drink as the bar filled up around him, and despite all of these angry stares from his neighbors, McElroy just didn't even really notice it. He purchased a six-pack and he casually left the bar. He said nothing to the 30-some-odd residents who stood nearby or those that were watching from a gas station just up the hill. His wife, Trina, climbed into the passenger seat of his truck. She looked around and then behind him, and she was the first to see the rifle (gasps) as one of the gathered men hoisted it to shoulder level. She heard the rear window of his truck shatter and saw her husband slump over the steering wheel. One of the men opened the passenger side of the door and ushered Trina out of the line of fire. She was led to a nearby bank, and the shooting continued for about 20 seconds, and then it stopped. So though the crowd that had assembled in the town's main street that day was estimated to be anywhere from 30 to 60 people, nobody called an ambulance, and nobody even turned off his truck. So the truck's still just sitting there running? Yeah. Once the shots subsided, the crowd just walked away. McElroy was hit twice by bullets from two different guns, and there is reason to believe that more bullets were fired that missed his target. So at minimum, there's two people. Most likely, there are more that were shooting at him. But literally, no one gave a shit. So from the time that she was brought in for questioning, Trina was unwavering in her assertion that she knew who the killer was. She identified a man named Del Clement as the one who had held up the rifle and shot McElroy. Because remember, it's still a small town and everyone knows everyone. So when she saw that gun being hoisted shoulder level, she knew who it was. Yeah. And Clement also had motive. Not only was he part owner of the tavern where McElroy would often stay and drive away customers, he was also victimized by McElroy's livestock heists. Oh. And he was also known to have a quick temper. Trina told the Nottaway County's prosecuting attorney that it was Clement. She told the FBI investigators and three separate grand juries. But she was the only one who was talking. So everyone else is just keeping silent, like, no one's saying anything, no one's blaming anyone, everyone's just playing dumb. Yeah, Trina is the only person who's saying, you know, I saw this, they shot my husband. 
everyone else is like, we heard gunshots and we didn't see anything. Oh my god. Which, I mean, to be fair, her witness testimony is, she was right there, so. Yeah, but if all you have is witness testimony. Oh, no, no, no. From one person. Totally. Yeah, I get that it's just witness testimony, but I I just find it really interesting that she's the only one that's like, no, no, I saw it. And everyone else is like, no, we didn't. Mm -hmm. We didn't see it. Yeah. Local law enforcement and federal officials tried every approach to gather information from the residents. They tried playing nice. They tried playing with a heavy hand, demanding to know what had happened. They insisted that nobody was going to get away with murder, and certainly not in broad daylight and in front of a dozen witnesses. FBI vehicles would crawl through town, stopping in front of houses. Agents would sit in kitchens, hoping to pry even the tiniest bit of detail from the locals. But in spite of this massive investigation by both local and federal authorities, and media attention from all over the country... Not one person in Skidmore ever confessed to the killing or implicated anyone else. They were, you know, this is actually kind of amazing because they were all behind one another. Like, no one (laughs) would say anything because they all just wanted him gone. Yeah, they had this monster in town who they'd tried over and over and the legal system had failed. And they'd been like, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to take law into our own hands. That's exactly what they were doing. Well, and this is, to be honest, almost like an old Western movie. Like, this this plot yeah. is so cinematic in, in, like, the town all came together and they got rid of them and no one blamed oh, yeah. anyone. Like, literally the perfect movie. I'm sure there are plenty that have been influenced or made of this. But yeah, numerous witnesses were questioned. Every one of them said they never saw who fired the shots. Three years later, Trina filed a $6 million wrongful death suit against the town, the county, and several other individuals, including Del Clement, who Trina had identified as one of the shooters. But the suit was settled out of court for $17,600 without anyone admitting wrong. Today, the population of Skidmore has shrunk to a little under 300 people. The grocery store and school have both closed down. Other murders have occurred in the surrounding Nottoway County since 1981, and yet everyone knows that the murder of Ken McElroy and the secret the town keeps remain Skidmore's deadly legacy. That town has shrunk quite a bit, and Mm -hmm. I can get it because a lot of uh, shit went down in that town. And we still don't actually know what happened. Yeah, it's so weird because it's something that everyone knows exactly what happened, and yet no one is saying anything. No one will ever give up anyone else. That is the case of the murder of Ken McElroy and the town that turned against him. Okay, well, do you want to jump into postmortem? Sure. So one point that I really want to make as we go into this postmortem is that We're really looking at the vigilante portions of these cases, not the crimes of the people who were killed. Because in both of our cases, the people who were killed were like absolute monsters. Like they both like totally fucked up and they did really dark things. But that's not what this topic was about. 
this topic is about them being murdered because someone wanted to be the hero. And so when I look at both of our cases from that lens, while mine was three guys in kind of a neighborhood coming together, but not necessarily, like the word spread in the neighborhood, and then three guys decided in a matter of moments to make that choice to kill gout. In your case, it was like a whole town that was all suffering because of McElroy's crimes and what he was doing. And I mean, to be completely honest, the fact that they all came together, he was killed and no one spilled the beans. No one said anything to this day. Like that is honestly beyond comprehension. Like that doesn't happen. People don't keep secrets. Yeah, I mean, the fact that the entire town, like, I can just picture in my head this collective, like, them looking at each other in the eyes and being like, we're doing this. Yeah. And the fact that it's been almost 40 years since this, and still nobody has mentioned anything. Like, it's been a really long time, and yet it's also not been that long to the point where there's still a bunch of people in the town who know exactly what happened, you know. Grandma and Grandpa, who live in Skidmore, may have been in that crowd. May have had the gun in their hands. Yes. They're not going to tell, though. Who knows? It's still so marked with mystery, which is why I think Mm -hmm. your case was more intense in this episode. Because we still, Mm -hmm. there is still potential for word to come out. You know? Because like you said, people are still alive. I mean, if... Yeah, if someone came out tomorrow and was like, hey, it was Rebecca Thompson who did it, and I collected these casings from her gun, you can match it to the bullet and you can match it to the gun she still owns, and then Rebecca goes to jail. Yeah, yeah. But who knows? So, okay, I will... I completely fabricated Rebecca. I don't know if she exists, but if she does, hey. (laughs) Totally fabricated. I got you. But okay, well, I will pick the topic for next week's episode and you will sit on your butt because we both pick wines. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for what you come up with and keep the Patreon topics rolling. Coming? Rolling? All All of it. it. Hope y'all enjoyed this episode. Um, If you did, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. It really helps us move up in the rankings. And while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We post all of the wines that we talk about, all of the episodes, a lot of other content. Sometimes you see pictures of us. Sometimes we ask you questions. My pretty face. <laughs> Just be sure to follow us on all the social platforms. Chat with us. Let us know what you're thinking. Let us know if you have a case you'd really love us to do. Like, we always try to interact with you guys and engage. And so just, you know, check us out. But with that, thank y'all so much. This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.